0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Claire. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics podcast at secondprintcomics.com. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Well, hello, Tom, and I thank you for, com- for coming back on the program. It's only been, you know, like five minutes since the last time we spoke, since we had you on the show.
1: Yes, that's how it feels like.
0: So th- this, is, this is how you know you're finally like leveling up in the world. I feel like when people want to turn into, you know, political commentary writers, they start off with basic politics. And you've written on a... Various number of topics But uh, it seems like now you know When you've really hit your stride When you start hitting China (laughs) And uh, I've got I've got a love-hate relationship with China I've got problems with the Chinese government I don't necessarily have problems With uh, certain things that they have done that caused a lot of confusion. I think we're very confused about the Belt and Road Initiative. I think we're very, you know, we we, we almost completely ignored the situation with the, the, the Uyghurs in literal concentration camps, but Disney told us it would be fine, so it's not a problem. And, uh, you know, when it comes to a lot of our trade policies, it's kind of schizophrenic because we want to bring jobs back home. But we also like cheaper stuff. So when you start hitting China, it, it brings about a lot of different emotions in people. And ultimately, I think, you know, one reason why, you know, it's, it's such a difficult thing to kind of cover for a lot of people is that we either don't know what's going on. We're scared for sometimes the right or the wrong reasons and we react to it. And uh, it's it's a threat that a lot of Western standards don't really know how to categorize, because I think in in the way that Americans view the world and the way that the Chinese view the world, it's uh, you know, I'm not going to say that one has the right the, the right way of seeing it versus the other. But they're very starkly different. And when we try and apply them to our standards, that's where a lot of stuff gets lost in translation. So you had a piece in the Orange County Register recently. How about you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, as you mentioned earlier, it's, um, as a journalist, you know, sometimes we write about some of the stuff going on around us, but sometimes things come up that are actually concerns to our readers. And that's how I felt, um, that You know, the issue with China is actually becoming more and more of people's concerns, especially people who follow politics and voters, people who vote, and they want to choose candidates that have the right mindset when it comes to foreign policy, because I mean, uh, our president as an example, like people usually think that, oh, the president of the United States has a lot of power. Well, that's not necessarily true because the president of the United States does not have as much domestic power as you think, but they have immense power over when it comes to foreign policy. And that's one thing that, you know, it's it's a little difficult for average voters to think about or, or maybe uh, there's not as much as media attention to it, as much as it should be, at least. There is a lot of discussion in the academic uh, side of things, but not necessarily when it comes to, you know, you and I, some people who are just, you know, underground. So that's why I thought it's really important to discuss this issue in my piece. I mostly talked about how it's important to be tougher on China and how That's not really a, quote unquote, like what you would think a conflict creator or a way to create more issues with China. It's actually a way for U.S. to avoid more wars and conflict uh, across the world, especially when it comes to China. So my take on the issue was if the U.S. keeps developing and keeps its hegemony in the world, it will actually deter China from being an adversary uh, not vice versa, not that we should give more carrots to our, uh, you know, to our challenger, which is right now, as you know, China, um, to in order to appease them as to like, you know, get their love and attention. Uh, but the opposite, we should actually be tougher. We should show our muscles and be like, hey, we're tough. You can't beat us. So that's why a lot of times uh, I believe a lot of uh, people in politics underestimate the threats that, uh, a rising power can pose to our national security. I'm not saying China has the power to like attack the U.S. and obliterate everything, God forbid. But just having the uh, enough power to cause harm is is already very dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we can we can jump in and around. The the giant three thousand pound elephant in the room, but I mean, COVID was one of those things. And regardless as the as to the um, you know the the origin of coronavirus and everything else, I mean, China did not help out. Who uh, China did not help out? You know the the rest of the world in understanding the numbers, the spread, everything else. And what we saw was that because of one virus that was introduced to the United States, the world's largest, most robust economy ever seen in human history was just completely halted for a little bit. Now, when, when it comes to China, I try and really kind of check myself because I I could I get a little bit emotional about this. For those of you that don't know, my mother's side of the family is from Seoul, Korea. And uh, my grandmother and her mother and her siblings were on the run from both um, Kim Il-sung's uh, communist revolutionary army, as well as um, the, the Chinese military, which was in the in the north. So like I've got I've got bit of a chip on my shoulder when it comes to that. But I try not to really, you know, put that on the Chinese people per se. It's more of one of those things where I have to separate the government from the people because when it comes to China it's it's a it's it's a really complicated thing and I mean in your piece you talk about the economic impact, you talk about cyber warfare, you you talk about their uh, the growing military expansion. And I think the thing with China that a lot of people Have as a misconception is twofold. One, we we take them seriously only when we begin to really see them grow militarily. But when it comes to other things, we kind of give them a pass. And secondly, there there's a difference in worldview. um, Primarily, that I think we've got a pretty antiquated view of China. I think that we we think that they're how they were, you know, during the 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 great cultural leap and everything, where they just want to be a regional hegemon in Asia, and we can't understand the fact that. They are, they are expanding worldwide. I mean, it, it really bothers me here where I speak with a lot of you know, foreign policy experts and you know, there's a difference between people that actually work in the field and people that just watch a lot of the news. And I think a lot of people get that misconstrued. But if I say like the Belt and Road Initiative and you don't know what it is and you wanna to talk to me about China, that creates a big issue because right now what we see like in Africa, for example, is Africa is China's China. You have thousands of Chinese businesses that are being built up in Nigeria, um, you know, throughout the Maghreb, for example. Um, you know, they're they're buying up property. Even in the United States, they're buying up businesses left and right. In California, you know, there are even a few Chinese and Japanese owned beaches that are just completely pushed off. We don't really talk about that. But China's really trying to restructure how we do global trade. And, you know, what what bugs me about so my, you know libertarian friends who are free market advocates, such as we are, is that they give China this pass where it's like, well, you know, everything is voluntary. We're creating the situation where this is good. And that's not necessarily the case. A lot of the times what we're dealing with is a situation where we have to look at this, not from just a, you know, pure free market purist standpoint, but also look at what is the cost of this. And, you know, what what we're seeing right now is that they're using, in in some very severe cases, slave labor. We don't want to talk about the Uyghurs who are being used in cobalt mines and things like that. We don't want to talk about the facts that they're using children. They're, they're taking them out of their communities. They're displacing them from the rural areas of China, and they're sticking them in factories. And we just say, well, you know, if we wanted to change, we'd just make the change. But it's not that simple, especially when we look at the facts that over the last 30 years, we have basically allowed politicians and big corporations to go ahead and rewrite the boundary lines of who's going to produce all of our things. I mean, I didn't even know that like 70% of American pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China. And that scared the living crap out of me. So I think this is an issue where it's like, we're suddenly finally talking about it, But I don't see a lot of people, either Democrats or Republicans, really capturing the issue that when China says they want to rewrite the rules, they're not just talking about it. They're actively doing it, and they've been doing this since before most people even realized it.
1: Yes, and you're absolutely right about the whole narrative around China. When it comes to that, a lot of uh, foreign policy folks are uh, look at it from one way or another, or they see that okay, well, we are still, um, you know, more powerful, and it's not going to be a threat. But this is what I'm, um, you know, writing about, and this is what my take is: is there are certain things that are not in our control, and it has to do with and nations of natural development, when it comes to China, I mean, China is a nation that has experienced a lot of humiliation in the past when it comes to the opioid wars and things like that. They want to regain their credibility from a previous wars that they have lost and uh other things that has happened to them uh in the past couple centuries and it's not just unique to china any country that has lost credibility in the history they want to they want to regain their power and the way to do that is to become a hegemon but we are living in a world that the us is already a hegemon so for china to regain its credibility back and to establish itself The way to do it is to challenge the hegemon in the ways that they can. So there are two discussions here. One of them is economic aspects and the other is military aspects. Well, I mean, it's no secret to anyone that U.S. is just the best, has like the high tier top military in the world, like by so so much distance. I mean, we're way ahead of so many countries, even China. Uh, Same thing with economics. I mean, as you mentioned, there there was a lot of, uh, you know, downturn when it came to uh, COVID and US has lost some numbers, but still we are far ahead. However, it doesn't mean it will stay that way. So, but here's a caveat. Um, China is different from us. We are a more free market, capitalist society. We're very diverse and we we have a young population that is productive. Um, however, in China, it's not like that necessarily. They're not as diverse as we are. Uh, they don't have an open economy, even though they have moved way towards capitalism in order to grow their economy. That's how they've been doing it. However, because of one China policy, um, it, over time, this hardworking, you know, productive, Uh, demographics is going to get older and older and they're going to be the burden on the society instead of being the productive side of the society. And that's inevitable in the long run. So China knows that, we know that. And so that's why I believe China will end up investing more and more in its military to kind of make up for that part that they can't have in their economic aspects. Keep in mind, in order to grow economically and also grow influence internationally, there has to be a military to back it up. There has to be a military to intimidate, to deter, to um, gain more uh, bargain power uh, for the global uh, outreach that China is going to have. And that's another thing that a lot of people uh, have mixed up with the history, I guess, is that they believe China does not have global ambition. I mean, that's impossible. Uh, Everyone has global ambition now. We're in a world that is getting more and more globalized. Uh, And I mean it in a very like broad term. We are, uh, every country knows that they can't just remain isolationist or they'll end up being like North Korea or Iran. Um, So China understands in order to grow itself and become the hegemon, they have to have a global outreach like we do. So and they've been pursuing it. So I believe the politicians who have been ignoring this fact are absolutely wrong. I mean, just look at it. Look at how China is building roads. The they're restoring the Silk Road. The. Uh, They are making a lot of deals with countries like Iran, with uh, countries in Africa. They're trying to fill the void that US has created when it comes to trade and for uh, international relations and diplomacy. They're making deals with those illiberal governments that we have shown for, for decades. They see an opportunity there because those illiberal governments that I mentioned like Iran are desperate right now. They need an ally. US is not gonna be their ally. So who's next? China. China shares their philosophy. China wants more uh, cheap goods, wants a market, wants cheap oil. There you go. Perfect.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, the one thing that I, I've had to do a little bit of research on my free time is what we consider pre- predatory lending practices. Have you looked into that at all? Yes. Yeah. And, and this is something that my my father, who's... Who's in the military? He was uh, he he was deployed to North Africa for about uh, fifteen months. Yeah, you know, this was something he was seeing dealing with his Chinese counterparts. For example, when America wants to go ahead and give a giant check to a country, a developing nation in Africa, for example, we write the check, but it comes with a bunch of different conditions: military conditions, economic conditions, from the past two administrations, stuff on religious freedom, on LGBTQ rights. I mean, it's a whole laundry list of demands. Because because we want to know that our money is not just going to be taken and spent, that's gonna come with some conditions. The thing about China though is that they they write a check, sometimes maybe even less than the check we're writing, but it comes with no conditions. And what they basically say that to bring it down to like a reader's digest level is we're gonna come back and ask a favor and you're gonna go ahead and do it. Now the United States and like, you know, England and France, for example, they look at that and they see, oh, that that's predatory lending. But when you look at, you know, like especially post-colonial history and everything else, we, we look around and it's like, nah, that was that's how it's been done before. We're only calling it predatory lending because we're not the ones in fact doing it. And while a lot of our stuff might come with more, you know, what 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 most people would probably say good intentions, it's like even Western countries don't have the best track record for giving money or giving resources and Um, you know, other services to, you know, developing nations, and then just, you know, giving it just out of the goodness of their heart. And China certainly isn't doing that too. They're building up giant military and naval ports throughout Africa. They're, uh, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to fight, uh, you know, piracy in in that part of the world and stuff like that. So like, they're bringing some value and they're bringing money. But, you know, I I think what we have is this situation where we treat this kind of like a current Cold War with an old Cold War mindset. We think that we're fighting just right outright communism and everything else. But the thing is, like right now, if China, you know, they've got one of the fastest growing middle, you know, rising middle classes in the world right now. That is something to consider. That's something that they're even having to look at. While they are a a communist nation, they do have a mixed economy. And, you know, they've seen through the American wars and everything else is that you cannot just expand yourself to get involved with every conflict imaginable. So it's not about just getting a whole bunch of countries to, you know, fall under one flag. It's about tying them up to you economically. It's about tying them up with you financially, you know, in terms of the actual money that's being put out in these predatory loans. And ultimately it's, it's just getting them to side with you on just the, what is the big picture, which is, as you mentioned, the one China policy. So it's one of those situations where we want to treat this current cold war like the old cold war. And that's why China, you know, to to their credit, they're going to be at least five, ten years ahead of the United States in policy. And I think, sadly, you know, the Trump administration they were they were the only ones kind of ringing the alarm on this. And even some Republicans in the House and the Senate were just kind of like, ah, well, you know that that's too big of a deal. We should just go ahead and accept that China is becoming a leading superpower.
1: Uh, and just to add something to what you mentioned earlier regarding the Cold War, and that's something I also mentioned in my piece is. Uh, We have been stuck in the post-Cold War mentality for a long time, and we've been fighting so many wars that, honestly, right now, they do not serve a strategic purpose anymore. However, there is this actual adversary that is rising right next door, and that is China. Uh, And as you mentioned, the Trump administration was the only one to raise this alarm and just... um, you know, I'm I'm just looking at it from a very realist perspective um, from the foreign policy side of my uh, you know, outlook. And I see this as a very long-term and more complicated situation than what we're facing in the Cold War. And also another thing that it tends to be missed when we're looking into the history, is that Cold War was not just U.S. versus Soviet. A lot of nations that were what we call third world, um, they were, there's a reason they're called third world, because they were not involved with either U.S. or uh, the Soviet uh, bloc. They were independent, uh, quote unquote. However, they were the ones who were Harmed the most in between because they were kind of left in between for the, these more powerful, like superpowers to come in, uh, pretty much you know, call the dibs on. So, uh, I mean, Iran is a really good example, India, uh, Egypt they became pretty much the uh, orphans of the Cold War and they were exploited by both sides because they were, of course, less powerful than both U.S. and Soviet and they ended up giving up a lot. They were exploited a lot in the Cold War. They ended up giving their resources to each side depending on who posed the most threat to them. For example, like Iran had to give a lot of, um, you know, scores to the US and ended up giving up a lot to the Soviet. And there was a lot of destabilizing factors there that ended up, you know, being the 97 and nine revolution. You know, there was a lot of uh, conflict that happened afterwards. And all of it was because of this rivalry between these two powerful Um, countries. And this is what I'm really concerned about, that if China raises up to be as powerful, it's just going to create more conflict in the world, not the opposite. Let's say if U.S. kept its global hegemony, China would still be, you know, Competing would still be doing all of it, but they knew that they can never reach that level. And therefore, they would avoid getting into any conflict with the U.S. Soviet was not afraid of us. They were almost going shoulder by shoulder, matching us in a lot of things. And it took a very long time for them to finally, you know, break apart. And that also caused a lot of issues. So this is something I am warning uh, our readers about, that we don't want to get into another conflict, that we would end up. Winning. I mean, there's no winner in the Cold War, but it's just something that I think people are ignoring right now. And in the policy aspect, that if there is this raising power, we should be really aware of. And we should be very aware of the consequences that come with dealing with raising powers. And instead of giving it more carrots, we should be vigilant about it. We should make sure that we do not allow this power to rise to challenge us, especially when we're seeing such red flags. I mean, China is, I mean, it's just uh, obviously like abusing uh, civil rights, is abusing a lot of minorities' rights. Uh, they're not, you know, just doing things for the love of God, like giving your loans. They're exploiting that vacuum that we've created diplomatically for a lot of nations in the Middle East and Africa. Um, so and as you mentioned, when it comes to business, I mean, we, get, we give China a free pass. I mean, look, during COVID, China threatened us that they would just cut off the supply of our own manufacturers that were in China, uh, that um, they will not allow us to have access to our own, you know, our own investments there. And, you know, you can't just invest in a country that you can't trust and you know that is uh, growing to be your adversary. However, we do that. We keep investing in China. We send our businesses there. And I think this is a huge, huge mistake.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where almost every facet of our society is somehow in some negative entanglement with the CCP specifically. Um, you know, one thing that bothered me when uh, I, I was at the Washington Times during my time in media was that you had a lot of reporters, both conservative and liberal reporters, who would go and attend Confucius Institute seminars now what what is the confucius institute the confucius institute is basically academic communist chinese propaganda oriented and tailored towards a western audience and when you go ahead and you look at the materials, when you look at the seminars, when you look at the speakers, um, you know, they're they're trying to befriend these reporters. So that way they'll go back and when somebody brings up, they'll be like, oh, no, the Confucius Institute, those are good guys. You know, the Chinese government's just really trying and things like that. And what they want to do is they want to bring in some of the practices that they're learning into their work. For example, one of the really disturbing things that I saw from a Confucius Institute seminar handout was talking about, you know, what what is the real truth? truth, real speak, big truth in a sense. And basically it's, you know, we can go ahead and put out pieces or put out reports that we know are factually wrong and are sometimes intentionally fraudulent. But if it brings out a good societal outcome, that is what's worth it. For example, if I wanted everyone in the city of Chicago to stay home, I could go ahead and get a bunch of local news outlets to say that Godzilla and zombies are running around. And I could go ahead and get you know clips from the movies to come out, zombies eating people, Godzilla stepping on a person, and everyone will freak out because, you know, they don't see Godzilla <laughs> coming, but the news is talking about it. Oh my God. Well, you know, they can go ahead and say, well, yeah, I mean, we lied, but look what happened. We stopped the spread and there were no murders in the city and we brought down our carbon footprint. So even though it was a direct lie, just absolutely fraudulent, it brought about a good, what they're determining is a good outcome. And they do that within china they did this about hong kong they made it seem like it was a violent revolution and things like that they go ahead and say that taiwan is is planning a massive invasion of mainland china they go ahead and say that the united states is prepping to launch bombs and stuff like that what they're willing to do is they're willing to lie in order to coax the population into following what they want to get the intended results as long as the ends justify the means that's fine the fact that they are American reporters saying that—that that is the terrifying part. Because what we're seeing is they don't need to be this militarily; they just have to make us see things their way, and then we immediately, you know, b- become the subordinate in that situation. And that's where I think re- re- Republicans in Congress, you know, conservatives in media and other places, and and Democrats and liberals, like they're all f- kind of falling into this because we see this giant world where we're suddenly you know, at an apex in terms of where do we go as a nation? And we're, we're kind of taking that secondary role.
1: And absolutely, there is this other point that I'm having issues um, discussing with folks, especially like-minded libertarians, is that every nation has their all the rights to defend itself and be intimidating to its adversaries, whoever they are, right? And that. Same goes for the U.S., same goes for China and for any other nation. However, when we start discussing U.S., it, it's, folks tend to get angry and they're like, oh, you're just advocating to start more wars. That's not true. When we're discussing a rising power and a hegemon wanting to replace the U.S. or any other hegemon, we're discussing conflict. We're discussing a nation that is looking for a way to start a conflict. And the way that they were able to do it is that they see a little bit of weakness or just a little hole in the wall, and they will exploit it. They will start a conflict. I'll just give you an example of how that played out in the history. Um, before 1979, when Iran had the um, you know, the monarchist rule, the Shah was still in place, Iran was known to be the hegemon of the Middle East. Uh It was the close ally of the U.S. It had a very large military, really advanced air force, and no country dared to touch it. And Saddam Hussein, on the other hand, was the neighbor of Iran, uh, also another illiberal government. At the time, Iraq was not nearly as, you know, as sophisticated as Iran. And even though they had a lot of border issues, they would he, Saddam Hussein would never dare to attack Iran, and Iran would never attack them because the Shah was not looking for any conflict. He was very progressive minded. He was more liberal minded. He wanted to make more, uh, create this whole like alliance of uh, oil producing nations that stuck together and made the most profit out of the oil they sold. That's how he saw the world. He of course did not see. An interest in attacking Iraq and So it kind of worked out Both countries that had historical conflict That you know had issues Especially border issues Avoided conflict for years and years Because one was very powerful And had deterring power And the other one was not So it was good on both sides Because when Iran got into this Whole mess of revolution And it pretty much You know lost its power in the region, Iraq attacked Iran and we had eight years of conflict that so many people died on the both sides. Over a million Iranians died. There were chemical attacks. There were bombs dropping on my parents when they were kids. It it was all because of this petty drama that was created because of this whole one nation wanting to be the hegemon and the other was declining. So um, at the end, no one won. A lot of people died and the conflicts, I mean, the border issues never resolved. And here we are. So this is how I see it. I see when there is this nation like in this case, China, that wants to become, you know, show muscles. And when we have this power like the U.S. that already has muscles, um, China will definitely try to. Exploit any sort of weakness that exists there, and try to show how it's more powerful than we are, and that will create a lot of conflict, and will, you know, end up killing a lot of people on both sides and harming people on both sides. It's not that anyone will win here. There's no winners in any war, um, and in this case especially, uh, our weakness has been our cybersecurity and our academia, our intellectual property, our innovations, because. Humankind is kind of moving away from bombs and things like that. The future is in technology. The future is cyber warfare. I mean, it's not even future, it's now.
0: (laughs) Uh, my, My biggest nightmare is that one day we'll wake up and every major bank will have its systems completely wiped.
1: Exactly. Like if you
0: take away your average American's ability to access their money, like there will be blood in the streets. And that absolutely terrifies me because it wouldn't technically take much to do that. Some people say, oh, they'll launch an EMP. They point out that our electrical grid system is like 10 years outdated. They bring up all these other issues. But it's like if we saw what they could do with a virus, and when I mean (laughs) what they could do with it, I'm not going to go ahead and say, oh, they, they did it intentionally. There's still a lot we don't know. I I, I fall in the camp of I think it was intentionally released to the rest of the world to slow down the United States. That's just my opinion. I could possibly be wrong about that. But we saw what they did with that. And you know, we're we're past a year's anniversary of fifteen days to flatten the curve. If they go ahead and attack us through cyberspace, it'll be like it, it it will be cyber Pearl Harbor.
1: Yes, a cyber Pearl Harbor is a really good way to put it. And uh, you don't have to go really far. I mean, China has been posing a lot of threats to us. They've been attacking us uh, for a very long time. Just very recently, there was an attack on Microsoft Exchange platform, which is what a lot of schools, universities and government agencies use as their email system and their cloud system. And also a lot of small businesses use it. So... uh, the same group that was tied to the uh, Chinese government to steal some of the um, disease uh, slash vaccine research information from American institutions was found to be responsible for these attacks oh, that wow. just happened last month, right before the Alaska summit Um so, I mean, those things are stuff that we don't really hear about in the media, but they happen every day and it's a really big threat. It's a, it's a big issue. And I know, I mean, we are the you know most sophisticated country when it comes to technology. We have the best tech in the world. We provide the tech for the world. However, the Technology moves really fast and it's so easy to uh, win the war when it comes to this if you're just a little bit ahead and it's not as expensive as other types of wars. It's not as expensive as building bombs. All you need is just a bunch of tech nerds and, you know, some uh, kids with hoods and laptops just sitting in a room and they can cost billions and billions of dollars of damage to their target. Uh, So, This is what I think is going to be even more devastating than um, anything to when it comes to U.S. economy and people's safety. Your data is important. Your privacy is very important and mm, it can be exploited. Anything that you have, anything you own, all your information can be tracked. They can be saved. And when it gets to the hands of the wrong people, they can be very much used against you. And you might think to yourself, well i'm not a top shot i'm just a normal person well what about that well let me tell you this in the previous attack they just you know kind of cast a really wide net and stole a bunch of information from normal people like you and i and there was like a lot of issues there and they did net a bunch of big fishes while they're doing it however at the end of the day, the real victims are going to be you and I, the small people, because, I mean, the governments can fight their way. They can sue. They can get damages. They can do whatever. But who's going to, you know, uh, pay for my stolen uh, data and my, you know, erased bank account information and all that? And again, these are not even conspiracies. These are things that are happening every day. Just, uh <laughs> just right across the street from me. There are like a bunch of aerospace companies and all that. They make rockets. I mean, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, Things are closer than you think. And your data is really important. And of course, everyone's looking to get them. I mean, look at how these companies are monetizing from our clicks and our likes and our Instagram pages and our cute dog photos. Well imagine how how that can be posed uh, created as a target, I mean, as a weapon to target you, right?
0: I, I didn't i I've been kind of avoiding this issue, not because I don't have an opinion on it, but because each time I go online, I feel like there it's just a bunch of angry people yelling at each other and and just insulting each other. but it's like the vaccine passport thing. It's like that is I I see that and I immediately see the the China the Chinese social credit score system and the fact that you know we're like well it won't be it, you know the, this is what bug bugged the hell out of me about Biden he's like well it won't be something that we're going to have a stance on we're not going to do it but maybe the states can do it and you know who will really want to lead the effort on that it'll be private businesses so you have him saying that so you have a lot of people who I think are smart genuinely kind people who who have a legitimate reason for why they think that this is a good idea, saying, well, you know, if it's a private sector vaccine passport, then that's totally acceptable. But we need to understand these people don't just say that and then back off. Like, you think that they're not going to go ahead and start offering tax exemptions. They're not going to be included in the next bailout bill. They're not going to get sweetheart deals or revolving door deals between them and different lobbying groups and government agencies. Just because it's going to be veiled with this potential free market solution, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a private, peaceful, voluntary association. I mean, you can only do so much until you have to make your own Walmart. And, you know, we, we you know, pe- people have been comparing it to the Chinese social credit score, score system, which essentially it's going to transition into. And they keep saying, well, it's not that because it's top down from the government. But it's like you can't just take something that applies one way and think because it doesn't apply in the exact same box here in the United States, it's not manifesting into the same thing. We, we would never let any any federal agency do that in the United States. Like even, even your most moderate person would be like, I don't feel comfortable with that. It's gotta come through the veil of, oh, this is an option. This is something that you can choose not to do. But what it's going to begin to do is it's going to begin to essentially segregate society. And when we look at what the Chinese have been wanting to do in their own country and in their neighbors and what they've been pushing through organizations like the Confucius Institute and through military and, and diplomatic actions. They want the world to look more like them. So that way they don't have to go elsewhere and force them to look like them. They want it to be under the illusion of choice.
1: Yes. I think any sort of data that is stored anywhere about anyone is, it can be really scary and um, when it comes to U.S.-China relations, it is scarier because um, when there is a way for them, for or I mean, any enemy, not just China, but right now we're speaking about China, um, is that they will try to exploit that because it's valuable and it's uh, kind of like a, they can hold your information hostage, and that's what I'm always very scared of. Is um, having my information um, stolen in a way that I did not give it voluntarily. I mean, I give my personal information voluntarily to Facebook and Twitter, whatever. However, I don't wanna give my information to somewhere that I did not know that I'm giving it to them. Um, A lot of third party advertising and all that that comes through social media, they don't get access to your data directly they just tell those platforms that I want my ad to be shown to these people, please do it for me. Um, so I mean, yes, there is a lot of uh, criticism against like social media in general and all these things. But however, at the end of the day, um, they they keep your information because they don't want to give it out for free because they're making money off of your information that you gave to them voluntarily. So they have the incentive to protect it. Uh, And however, I can't say the same thing about um, other things like governments or anything like that because they really don't have the incentives to protect it. But when it comes to, when you have a threat like China that is posing a direct like cybersecurity threat that they want to exploit your privacy, your citizens' privacy, private information that does give U.S. government a huge, that should be a huge incentive, a big red flag that either one, they should very like up their game and make sure that my information as a citizen, this country is not stolen from the government because, I mean, like if I'm paying taxes, if I am a U.S. citizen, I mean, sure, have my information, but I I trust you to keep it safe. That's why I'm paying taxes. That's why I'm paying you to be in charge of government so if they can't do it properly then i don't know what else i can do here so i think that's another litmus test for our policymakers to really really make sure that they're protecting their citizens data as much as they want to protect their borders and their uh trade lines and their uh ships and bombs and all bases outside of the us i think it's as important
0: just curious, um, you know, I, I was always – I'm not a tariff person. Of course, I'm not a tariff person. But when President Trump at the time was placing these these tariffs on China – um, he, he got a lot of backlash from that. And I think it was good that some people pushed against it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I think we we fall under this illusion that the whole world is operating already in a free market, you know, free trade system, when in fact, that's not true. And China, you know, they, they're never going to act that way. So when he put those tariffs on China, I almost saw that as evening the playing field because of everything that's going on. Uh, what what did you think about it? And do you think it's good that President Trump, I'm sorry, that President Biden is going going to be repealing some of those back or do you think that you know that that's an unwise decision?
1: Um so when it comes to tariffs, it gets a little, you know, kind of gray area, weird, because it gets really
0: wonky real fast.
1: Yes, because it's very like you have to go and look into every single detail and every single thing. And I know there was a lot of objection about some of the tariffs that hurt a lot of American farmers. And also, there are some things that maybe have been beneficial to a lot of American producers, such as uh, car makers. And our car companies have uh, w- really benefited from this whole like trade war. So I guess it comes down to very individual industry that we're talking about. Um, the one thing I am going to say about the tariffs and the whole idea of trade war is at the end of the day, the consumer is the one who's going to pay the ultimate price for the tariffs because it's just going to make those products more expensive. And it gets even weirder when you do not have the product produced in your country with cheaper price and a better quality that the consumers can replace it with. So the tariffs usually come in place when you have the same product your your for example let's say you have toyota and also you have chevy they're competing in the same market and you want americans to buy from chevy because that's the american product so you do something to make toyota more expensive for american consumers so therefore they would be deterred from buying toyota and they go to chevy and chevy is you know be- pretty good you know it would do the job and people might be happier and maybe the company gives more incentives to people to actually go and buy Chevy. That's one way to look at it. The other way is, uh, well, there's Toyota, but Toyota is the only car in the market that people buy. And if you put tariffs on it, then people still have to go buy it, but they will just end up paying more and they'll end up suffering. So I guess that's the ultimate thing that a lot of people have to look into. Okay, if I'm putting tariffs on this X product, Is it going to benefit the consumers, going to hurt the consumers, and most of the time it's going to end up hurting the consumers? Because we have not created the competition in the U.S. for for the U.S.-made products in a lot of ways. And just also keep in mind, a lot of things are not unilateral. It's not that we put the tariffs and that's it no usually it's on um, multilateral or bilateral like the other side will do the same and they will put tariffs on the us products and they will make it harder for us producers to sell their products overseas we witnessed it with um Let's say a whiskey. One of my friends from Young Voices, Alice Calder, she wrote a piece about how the trade war has hurt the whiskey production in the U.S. Uh, because, you know, the I, I Europe- felt
0: I felt that pain on like a spiritual level,
1: <laughs> and a lot of people would agree with you uh, because of the trade war. A lot of Producers were unable to sell their product in Europe. So um I'm just saying that trade war is very, very complicated. And uh, I can talk a whole lot about another, like a whole episode about trade war. But when it comes to this issue of Trump's policy towards China, I'm going to say this that um, I read the entire um, strategic plan of the White House memo on this. And I believe that they really hit really good points um, when they understanding the real threats that we are facing, such as intellectual property law, such as um, espionage, such as uh, American businesses going to China and then at, the, at some point, China being able to hold them hostage against us if something happens, as we witnessed during COVID, like the, the Trump administration warned against this back in 2017. So I believe they did a really good job as, uh, at looking at this issue from a very um, holistic, realist point of view. And uh, I believe foreign policy is something that should be very nonpartisan. And I believe it's one of those things that has remained a little like nonpartisan so far. And um, I believe both parties agree with each other that you know X country is the enemy or X country is the friend. Uh, but what I'm really scared of here is the issue when it comes to China, like it becomes a partisan issue or it becomes a hawk versus pacifist issue or it becomes some like that sort of discussion. Uh, it shouldn't be. It should be something that we look at it from a very objective point of view. We understand the threats and we also see the opportunities that we can have if we can. Build build a better relationships with our allies that would benefit both us and our allies in order to deter China, go for it. Um, if there are situations where we have to be really hard with our adversaries um, that are maybe are going to be connected to China and they might give them some la- leverage to exploit them, w- well, we should take an action. Um, if there are opportunities to create more allies across the world that uh, could benefit again, both them and us uh, on, you know, as a libertarian, I love trade. If we can trade with more nations to fill those gaps uh, of Chinese products um, that those countries need, well then go for it. That would create a lot of jobs for Americans. Um, If we could move a lot of our uh, production that, requires labor into South and Central America to create more jobs in those nations that would at least kind of at least lift the pressure from oh the God. border you issue. It just reminded
0: me, like, I just found this out like a week ago. Like when you sent me your article originally on Twitter, I, I, I did a little bit more uh, digging into that. I found out the largest Spanish speaking military training center in the world is run by China. In Caracas, Venezuela, I am not surprised they have. It's the largest for. It's the largest Spanish speaking language training facility, and it's in our own backyard.
1: Yes, and again, Central America, South America, they are very strategic to us in many ways, and um, Venezuela has become that weak point. That China and Iran have been exploiting for years and years, and we're not hearing about it. I mean, it's not random that they're dealing with what they're dealing with in Venezuela. It's been going on for years and years and years, uh, and we've been ignoring it. we we've been underestimating it. That would be another Cuba situation, in my opinion, and I don't want to see that. It's it's going to be really costly to us if uh, culmin, if it culminates. So again, um, folks are really concerned about border issues and immigration issues. A lot of these individuals that end up coming to the border, they are looking for jobs, they're looking for opportunities, they are desperate, there, there are no opportunities in their countries. And as an immigrant, I totally understand the mindset. And if the U.S. wants to really like fix that issue from their roots, they have to invest in it, I guess. And the best way to do it, instead of investing in China, why don't you invest in South America and Central America? They have skilled workers, they have educated people they have resources that you can buy with a lower cost. there is less cost to ship items from there. I mean it's good on every side. We get our products and they get the investment in the c- job creation. look what avocado industry did in Mexico we, <laughs> <laughs> I mean we we just I created like, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> i mean we create a whole bunch of jobs for a lot of people in so many in places in mexico that never had such opportunities um and again now we have avocados at every supermarket so it works on every way both for for like mexico and the u.s imagine doing that on a larger scale like i mean i i believe that apple can still produce really good macbooks um in you know like let's say mexico or panama uh in all of our Apple devices says like made in China. I mean, that's again, that should be another red flag for you that all your devices are created in China. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> I think these are a lot of strategic things that are not only limited to businesses, but also government slash businesses. I know like this will anger a lot of libertarians as I'm saying it, uh, cause they believe that businesses must be, a, if, must be able to do whatever they want. Well, here we are and It has created literal national security issues, threats to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So um, I believe as a libertarian that there has to be some level of accountability uh, when it comes to these matters. I don't think businesses investing in countries that are our enemies is going to be beneficial in the long run even for the free market. It's just gonna create more challenges for everyone on every side.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, something you said earlier that I really want to touch on because I think it's the highlight is you know, this should be a a, a bipartisan issue yeah. because you know, we're not looking to start another war. We're not looking to go ahead and make somebody's life worse. We just want to make sure that we're not putting the the, the safety and the privacy and the liberty of you know of Americans and others in the free world at risk risk you know out of out of a out of a want for convenience and this is why I really hope that the Biden administration while I've been incredibly concerned about um you know President Biden and his son's hunters ties uh, to China and while I'm, I think that you know the Democrats right now are weaker on China policy compared to the previous administration deep down there's this part of me that still thinks nobody regardless of what party they're in wants to be in charge when America gets totally ransacked because they were lackadaisical on something. And I'm not saying that we need to go ahead and create a whole separate police state apparatus just just focus on China. We see what happens when we try and do that. But at the same time, you know, we know what they're doing. They're very open about what they're trying to do. We definitely should not feed into that behavior.
1: Yes and again looking back into the history I think this has been the biggest mistakes mistake that humankind has been making for for a long time that they have been appeasing the very nation that has global uh, ambitions or taking over uh, ambitions yeah. <laughs> and again historically uh European nations did the same thing with Hitler. They gave him uh, areas in Czechoslovakia Czechoslovakia and uh, some of the German-speaking land. They just gave them to Hitler um, because they wanted to appease him. They kind of wanted to calm him down and be like, hey, we're, we're friends. But that very thing ended up making him very powerful. That ended up killing a lot of innocent people in the World War II. And a lot of historians link that one appeasement factor to what happened and i think that is extremely sad and i'm not saying like i don't want to like overblow this whole issue of china like oh this is going to be the next war but, but it but can we very see much be a pattern of
0: behavior yes
1: i see a very i see a pattern that uh mm-hmm. the first instincts uh, that a lot of these uh stronger countries have towards these rising powers that, oh, let's give you a carrot and so you can just, you know, shut up. And I guess that's what the Obama administration has been doing. They did this with China. They did this with Iran. They gave carrots away to all these illiberal nations. And what happened? They ended up getting more powerful. They ended up killing more innocent people. And at the end of the day, they just became they, they still remain our enemy. <laughs> and here oh, I mean, we are.
0: It, it's, like, it's like, you know, oil for uh, oil for kids in Iraq when Saddam was still in charge during the Clinton administration. It's like, okay, you know, we're going to go ahead and allow the UN to go ahead and bring in, um, you know, medical supplies and food to, you know, feed the starving children of Iraq because of the embargoes and the other, uh, you know, restrictions we put on trade with Saddam's regime. But what's he doing? He's just taking that money and he's using it to create Scud missiles to go ahead and shoot at the Kurds.
1: Exactly. And
0: we we knew that was happening. And we were still like, oh, you you know, Saddam just shot out one missile. He'll stop one day. It's like, no, he kept shooting missile after missile after missile after missile.
1: Yeah. And again... If if you can't if you don't want to change the regime or if you don't want to like do that, that's totally fine. At least don't feed the beast. And I think the our policymakers either want to just go ahead and like just outroot the whole bureaucracy out of these nations, and like create that like whole internal war and conflict and regime change thing, or they keep feeding these like really bad governments, like a can't a cancerous uh Cell that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they think that's totally fine, just let the cancer grow and spread. Well, if you don't want to take the cancer out, at least do some chemotherapy to keep it small and at least keep it harmless. Uh, you know, like it's you can't just ignore it, you can't feed it, you can't, uh, and if you can't take it out, if it's in a dangerous spot that would cause harm to your limbs. At least keep it small with chemotherapy, and that's how I think it should be uh, with China. China is that tumor that you know, frankly, we shouldn't remove or we can't. It's costly, and that's what I'm advocating against. Like, I don't want us to get into more wars, and I see appeasement process and giving more carrots to China is just gonna expedite the whole war and conflict with China, it's not going to make it better. It's not going to make China more friendly towards us. It's just going to make them stronger. That would challenge us. They're going to challenge us anyway, because they want to establish themselves as a global hegemon. They have said it, they're going to say more. And I just hope that people in DC, people in, you know, policy-making world hear me out that do not underestimate these threats and also do not appease the liberal governments that have hegemonic ambitions.
0: Definitely. So what I'm going to do, folks. I'm going to go ahead and link to your piece in the show notes, say, so that way I think everyone should go and read this. We've covered a ton of stuff today, and this is just one article of yours that we've done. You know, I I love reading your work, really, I do. If anyone wants to keep up with everything you're doing, follow you on social media, badger you about this type of stuff. How could they do so?
1: Yes, uh, you are more than welcome to follow me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at D-E-T-A-H-M-I-N-E-H. Or you can find my uh, profile on Young Voices website, young-voices.com slash talent. And you can find me there under talent. And all my articles are listed there. And plus all my social media uh, links are also on my talent profile. So feel free to hit me up, uh, DM me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Uh, I would be more than happy to answer any questions and chat with y'all. Thank you. You
0: say that as a bunch of guys are listening. That never leads to anything good.
1: Anyway,
0: <laughs> um, th- th- thank you so much for coming on as always. Thank you, a pleasure.
1: Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me.
0: Folks, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts allows me to go ahead and let people know about the amazing conversations and times that we're having here on the show. It allows more people to go ahead and spread this message. It helps us get in those Apple uh, top trending charts, so that way it's basically free publicity. And you know, I'm a shameless self-promoter, so I got to go ahead and push for that. As always, go ahead and listen to me and the other shows at the We Are Libertarians Network. We had our group removed on Facebook because somebody posted a hilarious Jeffrey Dahmer meme. About they're not actually being Five Guys and a Five Guys Burger at Five Guys Burgers and Fries. It's a shameful world we're in, but we can do this together. As always, be safe, be good, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at WeAreLibertarians.com, like The Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom's Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart-Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now, and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends.